Welcome to the Heroic Minds Podcast, where we uncover the heroic stories of individuals battling through adversity and rising to the top of professional sport, business, and life. Uncovering the characteristics, the secrets, the tactics to become the hero of your own story. Because it is adversity that maximizes human potential. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have NHL referee, U.S. Open competitor, and cancer survivor, Garrett Rank. Now, on today's episode, we talk about his journey to both the NHL and professional golf. But we also talk about his journey through cancer. We talk about how to de-escalate a situation, dealing with making the wrong decisions. We also talk about some actual real scenarios that have happened on the ice, some funny stories about our past guests, such as Gabriel Landeskog, Mark Scheifele. And we talk about some, some funny chirps and comments that Garrett got at the U.S. Open this year and a bunch of other things along the way. It's an exciting episode. It's interesting because I don't know if we'll ever have another National Hockey League ref and professional golfer to sit down and chat with. So it's a, a really cool opportunity, an episode that I had a lot of fun with, and I hope, I hope you enjoy it. As always, before we kick things off, remember to check out truelocal.ca. High-quality meat, individually packaged, totally chosen by you online. You create the exact box you want with the exact meat that you want, and it's high-quality meat sourced from all over Ontario. So you're supporting local and you're eating incredible meat. Use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters, to get $25 off a regular size box. The background on how you get into both golf and refing, like how, from I guess from a young age, yeah, you, I assume you played hockey and then, yeah. Yeah, as a, as a young kid in Canada, you just grew up and you play hockey and um, baseball or soccer wasn't big in my area, so it was straight to the golf course. My parents and I always laugh that they used uh, the golf course as like the babysitting tool for me and my brother. Uh, we'd had, we'd go out there like eight in the morning every day, come home at like eight at night and then uh, ended up uh, working and um, was just at the golf course all day in the summer. And, and hockey was, uh, was like my first love, loved playing and uh, just ended up never playing professionally, but uh, played a high level and enjoyed uh, my time in hockey. Were you better at, were you a better golfer than you were a hockey player all growing up? Or? I was, uh, with like a humble brag here, I was <laughs> unbelievable at hockey, uh, like at a young age. And then um, like I'd score like three, four goals a game, like single A hockey in, in Woolwich. And then uh, once like hating came in, I was like a little bit smaller. I had a late growth spurt and I just got like distracted by like the rough and tumble and kind of became like an agitator and got away from like the speed and skill side of things. And uh, I was, I wasn't a great junior golfer. I never made the Ontario junior championships, but um, you know, had some success at like a local level, won the Ian Leggett junior golf tour. Um, But it wasn't until my second or my, middle of my first year of university and really the second year of university where my gar- golf career really started to take off. And at that point, are you playing hockey as well? Yeah, I, I was uh, on a hockey and golf scholarship at Waterloo and uh, played on the hockey team for two years. And just with the academics being so hard at uh, at Waterloo, I had to make a choice and, and golf was kind of, I saw a brighter future in golf. Oh, okay. And what were you taking at the time at Waterloo? Uh, business finance. I was in the econ program. So Wow. Um, graduated in the honors business program and uh, I was an athlete student but I uh, <laughs> did, did very well and uh, 
wasn't naturally gifted, but just tried really hard at school. Right on. And then is it, so it wasn't till midway through university that you realized golf could be something bigger than a school sport or recreational. Yeah, I worked started working with a swing instructor. I'd gotten lessons in the past, but I really started to focus on my game. Uh, Dave Smallwood uh, was our assistant coach uh, at the time, and now he's my full time golf coach. But he uh, he was always like bugging me about being happy with like seventy five. I'd uh, I'd go on the course and make a couple pars and make a birdie and then I just kind of like mail it in and try and protect that score. So um, he really pushed me to get to the next level and really worked on mechanically and then just like kind of how to manage your way around the course. What was it score wise and performance wise that changed you from going you know golfing at Waterloo, going to school to having more professional numbers? Like what was that change? A little bit of mechanics, but then just more so like course management, Um, you know, hitting, hitting, making aggressive swings towards conservative targets. A lot of time, you know, when you're trying to get better at golf, you're going to be a little bit too aggressive. Or if you're in the trees, you're going to try and hit your shot from the trees like up near the green. Whereas if you just hit it sideways out, then you have an open shot or guarantee your next shot's going to like get on the green or you'd like for it to get on the green. And then just short game and putting. Um, you know, most guys can, hockey players, for example, can hit it like pretty far, pretty hard. Um, but then they get around the green and they just, you know, a three putt or you chip it and you don't get it up and down. And that's like very easy to turn a four into a five. And then before you know it, it's, that's like six or seven shots at the end of the day. Wow. Okay. That's, okay, that's stuff we want to dive into. Before we get into that, though, there was a point when... Uh, I guess the adversities that you just deal with in both your, we'll say both your jobs today. Uh, before that though, there was something in your life that I guess threw a little bit of a bump in the road. And that was, was that in high school when you had, when you went through testicular cancer? No, that was in third year university. Oh, um, like doing, doing well, that kind of like was what put a stop to my hockey career. I like, wasn't feeling great. Um, wasn't like big and or like big enough and strong enough. I got bounced around. I mean, I'm, I was like 6'2", probably 200 pounds, but um, it was like playing against men in, in Canadian university hockey. That's probably the best hockey league in Canada that really nobody knows about. Right. And uh, so just like wasn't big enough, wasn't strong enough to play out there. And uh, in my third year of university, just kind of went to the, I was refing a tournament, the under-17s out in, uh, in Winnipeg and just felt like really sick and um, had like a pain in, in uh, my genital area and went and got it tested and before I know it it was the cancer word was being thrown around and um what a like what a shock to your system at like 22 years old yeah I and when Bob Stevens was on the oncologist that we briefly chatted about before before sitting down here like I even struggle with the word and that's what I said to Bob I th- I said you know this is incredible to talk about and almost bring a bit of optimism to the conversation what was that like when you first so like that was like the first time I saw my dad like cry and be like rattled and physically like shaken. So I, I came out uh, of like my meeting with my oncologist and he's like, oh, so like what's going on? Like, you, you good? And I was like, I'm like, no, he just told me I had cancer. But I was like, what do you mean you have cancer? Like cancer. And I'm like, and like, it, it's just such a powerful and strong word. And for me, like selfishly, I never really like believed that I had it. I always like told myself like, no, this is like a wrong diagnosis. Like there's no way I was in such good shape, doing well in refing, playing hockey, doing well in golf. And I was like, I was like, no way this isn't true. So uh, big shock to my system at, at, at a young age, but the whole time I dealt with it just had a really positive attitude. 
Yeah, so how did you end up... I mean, because even looking at your story online, like, it was touched on briefly, but then it looks like you were actually able to deal with it quite quite well. Like, how did you manage to do that? So I missed a semester of uh, university. Um, it was about six months of laying flat my back at my house. Um, had surgery, had a testicle removed, um, and then just dealt with some treatments. And uh, so it was kind of like, knocked out for six months and then slowly probably went faster than I should back to refereeing hockey games that was kind of like my escape um so I remember I was out there with like bandages all wrapped around my body I'd come off the ice I'd be like bleeding everywhere and I'm just like I'm like dude what are you doing but I was just you know that's just who I was and I was motivated to get back on the ice and I like wanted to wanted to like get back into like officiating for the next season so I was that was like my main goal and and uh so yeah just had a really positive attitude and tried to like I'm, I mean I know I had cancer but I still like to this day kind of like think like no I was like that was wrong I don't have it wow and hey that's worked for you mentally, yeah that's I what's guess. worked for me yeah I think I mean we'll get into more of it as we as we chat here but I think even having a little bit of experience in refing and I'm only talking minor hockey you're so you have to be so focused and almost in a state of flow that I feel like it would it would be a good escape of any issue because you literally don't have time to think about anything else. For me, I've I've actually like I'm actually glad I went through cancer beat that made me a lot stronger mentally, but then it also gave me like a way better outlook and like perspective on life. So a, a bad golf shot is maybe not as bad as it once was or, you know, a missed call or a, a bad game in refing like really it could be a lot worse. Like you're talking about life or death here. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I feel like I'm on my second life or like my second chance. And so now like every little thing that I get is like a bonus. So playing in the U S open a couple of weeks ago, I was like, Oh, this is sweet. Like never <laughs> thought I'd be doing this, but here we are like hitting balls beside Spieth and McElroy and like, you know, Oh, there's Tiger Woods. Like I grew up idolizing that guy. And it was just like, I could have reached out and like put him in a headlock if I wanted to, but uh, it was like, it was just cool to like, it's just cool to like, see how, you know, you go through something and I shouldn't say like so low, but like, yeah, you're at a low point in your life, like physically and mentally. And then to kind of the point where I'm at now, where just like, essentially living living the dream of like yeah. a lot of dudes uh, all my buddies and like a lot of like sports people uh, in the world yeah like literally you're in north america for sure you're one week you're golfing beside tiger woods who's the center of sport i feel like right now as he comes back into the game and and then three weeks earlier you're refing games with the best nhl players in the world so it is probably a lot of guys on their couches are thinking I could, I could do that, you know, as they always say, the yeah. uh, couch coaches or couch players, whatever you call them. And it's like, oh, I could do that. For me, it escalated <laughs> quickly because I, I never got any playoff assignments. I got three standby assignments. Um, one, of our, one of my colleagues, Steve Barton, got injured in the game, and hopefully he's, he's on the, well on the road to recovery. And um, So I went as a linesman in, in uh, April 20th into a Stanley Cup playoff game uh, between Columbus and Washington in Washington, game two of the first round. And then I guess like June 20th, uh, two months later, I'm playing in a major golf championship. So in the span of two months, I went to like the peak of like the NHL, the Stanley Cup playoffs to like a major championship on the PGA Tour. So that's... And- pretty cool how do you how do you prepare for that like do you are you able to golf enough that you feel confident on the course uh no not in the in the season but uh so like 
I was done. I had two days later. It was that was the end of my my NHL season as a referee, and so I had pretty much played golf uh, every day since May first. So I mean, I had like thirty five days prior to qualifying for the U.S. Open where. You know, I was down in Florida playing and practicing. I went to Peru for two weeks, played a tournament there, did some traveling, came back, worked on my game. Um, so, I mean, for me, that was enough because I was always used to putting my clubs away for the wintertime, mm-hmm. being in Canada, and then um, just playing in the summer. So I felt I felt ready and prepared, but obviously I, like, wasn't, like, prepared and ready to, like, where I should have been if I was, like, pursuing golf for a living or to try and play mm-hmm. on the PGA Tour every week. But I was happy with, with where I was at going into the event. How far away from that point are you in regards to showing up and being able to to say, you know what, I have zero excuses because I'm totally prepared? Is that Or is that even a realistic... I don't even... I never even really, like, thought about it. It was just more so just going there and, you know what, I've put in the last 10 years of my life playing golf pretty much every day, all summer traveling all around North America, playing these different events. So like that was my preparation. That's like my um, kind of um, thoughts when I go to an event. I play fun rounds of golf with my buddies and I stink because I'm not focused. Okay. But like you put a, like you put me in a tournament atmosphere and like click, it just, I'm like a, a different player. And I don't know like if that's just experience. I don't know if that's just the way I'm programmed. But um, I find, like, if I just go to an event, then, like, player number two comes out and, like, he's ready to go. Player number two sounds badass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so player number two is better than player number one. <laughs> okay, that's what, I'm, I, that's what it sounds like. How, what, okay, so what would be the difference then? Because that, that's interesting of being able to turn it on and turn it off. Like, if you step up to the tee box when you're out with your buddies versus when you step up to the tee box and, you're, and it's an event, like, what... I guess even looking out at the pin, like what would be the difference going through your mind? So probably play a little bit more aggressive with my buddies because you're trying to show off or make bird, not show off, but like make birdies and and Mm. try and hit it at every flag because they're like, if you hit the safe shot to the middle of the green, they're like, oh, this guy's no good. (laughs) You're like, this guy's not that good, right? So you're trying to like, trying to like make birdie on every hole. Um, But I would just say that in terms of like, just going to an event and playing, I don't really know because I play so much in the summer and event like every week, I don't really know what it's like to play with my buddies anymore or a non-counting or a non-tournament round of golf. So, I mean, I was nervous on the first tee of, of uh, the U.S. Open, but I thought it'd be way, like I thought it'd be more nervous and like shaking and like almost scared to hit the shot, but felt like pretty fine. You're not feeling normal. It's not like a normal day on the golf course, but overall I was like, extremely proud and happy with how I felt um but like even you know going and playing tournaments now for the rest of summer because I've played in the U.S. Open it's it's like now like okay you've been there you're at a been a higher stage this now is just as important you want to play well but you like you gain that experience and you feel you know more confident and at ease and like and just calmer playing the golf event so not I, I wouldn't really deal with first tee nerves um, nowadays, as opposed to, you know, maybe five years ago, I would have dealt with them a little bit more. That is interesting. I actually asked, so a few weeks back, I sat down with Landis Gog, who we'll get into in a little bit, but I had asked him what he would tell his 16 year old self in regards to the sport and performance, like as a, maybe both refing and golf, but now that we're on the topic of golf, like what would you tell your, 
yourself when you were golfing your first tournament? Like, what do you know now that the big thing for me now is so like, I've always had like the physical skills and like the talent to be like good at golf, but golf is a huge mental game. And so for me now, the biggest improvement I've made is in, in my mental game and just kind of relaxing and letting it go. You've almost got to care enough to care less, if that makes sense. Like sometimes you just try too hard. You're so passionate. You want to do so well that you're out there like almost trying too hard and it makes you play worse. Whereas if you're just like, oh, this is the U.S. Open, but I'm just going to imagine I'm on the first tee to Meyer and I'm going to drive the green. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you... When I go to Elmira, I drive the green or hit it near the green every time I play there. But how do you transition that to the U.S. Open first hole where you're like, oh, I'm just going to hit it down the fairway. But now there's, you know, 10,000 people watching. There's fescue and like there's wind and the course is way faster. So it's it's if I looked back at it, I would I would really tell my 16 year old self to play like with a calmer mind or like with be like just more relaxed on the course. Yeah, which is interesting because then you perform way better as if you, you know, we have this idea that you do need to be like, just grunt at everything. And then I, it's funny you say that because I had a conversation with, with a buddy towards the end of my career. Actually, it was a year after I was done playing and it was a, um, a student at the University of Waterloo that was doing some sports psych stuff. And he said, and this is the coolest thing, he said, as an athlete, we think we have to be, like even before the game, it's like have two coffees or, a, or guys are now taking like energy stuff that fires them up and you think... Right. We're, I mean, maybe this is old school. I, I know things are changing now, but they, he said, that's what everyone thinks as an athlete. You have to be in the change room or wherever you are in the dugout, whatever sport it is, and you have to be fired up and ready to go. And he said, but imagine if you were at, you know, 70% of your maximum energy, maximum output, and then now you have an extra 30% that you can bring it to mid-game. And I just thought, I don't know, it sounds similar to what you're saying, is if you're at, if you're running peak energy, 90 to 95%, and then you try to, where are you going to raise it to? You really can't. Like you're just running at full output and you can't think clear. And I'm sure that, you know, it sounds similar to what you're saying. It hasn't helped my golf game at all, but, <laughs> but it, I think I, I wish I would have known that back in the day. Cause I always thought you have to get, you know, super fired up for, for every sporting event. So that's, well, that's I mean, good. I've never really thought of, I've never really thought about it that way, but I mean, I know guys have like routines and what they like to do before a round, you know, they'll want to hit like a certain number of balls. Like what if you hit like one more ball? Does that mean that like, you're not going to hit it as good all day? Or like you go to the putting green and sometimes I go to the putting green and I like, like not making any putts before the round, like I'll hit them and I'll miss them all. And then that way of going into the round, my expectations are way different or, or way lower. And then all of a sudden I'll like make a putt on the first hole and I'll be like slight building confidence. Then like I'll, make a putt on like the third or fourth hole and it's like oh here we go like good putting day today whereas on the putting green you know I wasn't making anything but if you on the flip side thing if you go to the putting green you start like making 20 footer after 20 footer you go on the course with this expectation that like I better make every 20 footer today because I was on the practice screen making those 20 footers yeah so I mean and even that can kind of heighten your like emotions or expectations going mm-hmm. around where I've almost like kind of just tr- treating my warm up now as going out there and just getting the body moving and just like not even like looking at where the ball's going, just getting like my body loose and ready to go out with zero expectations and kind of just like letting it go on the course. Right. Like, do you have, would, I guess, I don't know if you think this way because of the sounds of it, you have it pretty locked in mentally, but I would, if I was warming up and sunk some long putts, I would, 
I would probably think, okay, there go my long putts that I was going to make today. Ex- like, exactly. <laughs> so you don't want to like waste them, yeah. right? You almost yeah, want to so, miss. Yeah. Like miss well, by a little bit. Yeah. Like hit them good so they're just like lip out and then they're like, oh, if they're lipping out here, then they like got to go. Gotta, exactly. Go There'll be a little extra wind and yeah. I'll be a stud on the, on, when I'm putting. At that, I, I'm curious about, again, for, for those that are listening, I tried refing at the end of my playing career, which was an awesome opportunity by some, uh, you know, a very selfless person in town that had helped set things up and went to the, actually, a, a refing combine for the NHL out of Buffalo. It was just an incredible opportunity. Met some amazing people that I, when I see them around the rinks, we, we catch up and joke around. So it was awesome. But I, holy smokes, do you realize right away and feel so bad for the people you yelled at when you played and complained. For the best way to put it is when you when everyone watches sport, and and you could probably put this even better as you are totally immersed in it. But from from my point of view, it's like when you watch sport, you're always watching one side, so it's easy. Like even subconsciously, really, you're watching one side. So if something happens to that one side, you can easily say, "Hey, that was a penalty. Hey, that was offside." Because it's one. But then you have to watch both sides equally and be aware of so many moving pieces at at once you almost your brain even as a player that played for myself played for you know 17 years and a decently high level it's like you'd never played the game before refing like you forget things you forget what offside is and you forget and and there are points where I would forget which way the team was going because the puck in the neutral zone was going back and forth back and forth but at the same time you're thinking a minute like a minute ago did I miss that call but then you you know something hasn't happened yet that's about to, and you have to be, oh, my God. So it's, I know I'll just babble on, but it was, it's crazy. So golf and refing, but, and it, there may be some differences, but when you have a crummy start to a game in golf and a game in refing, are there, are there similarities of how you get back dialed in, or are they different in each? No, ex- exactly the same. Like if you If you hit a bad shot, like boom, forget about it. You'd love to change the result. You'd love to take a mulligan, go back and try and hit it again. But you've got just, I, I used to not do a very good job at that. But then I think kind of refing has helped. And I think golf has kind of helped the refing where, hey, you're going to make bad calls. You're going to hit bad shots. It's just a fact of life. It's been in sport, in both sports for hundreds of years. It's going to happen. So you just got to learn to like move on as quick as possible. And, um, you know, it's different in the terms that in golf, you're kind of by yourself. You only can kind of like not get mad at yourself, but like you hit the, you hit the bad shot in refing. You're kind of like with the team and you know, like sometimes there's going to be like, they're going to be mad at you. So your teammates are going to have to deal with like their anger. And sometimes they're going to be mad at your teammates and you're going to have to deal with like the brunt of it. So like golf's like very individual and then kind of refing is like the, the team aspect of, of like sport for me. And then I, you know, I realize in refing, they're not like, I mean, I like to classify myself as like a good guy. So I'm like, Oh, like they're not mad at me. Like I'm a nice guy. They're just mad at like the Jersey that I'm wearing. So, um, that's kind of like how you deal with the, with like the scrutiny or like when people get like upset at you in uh, in hockey. I've never heard it that way. That's smart. Cause I, I had someone else say, um, when I was, when I was thinking about refing and, and went to the, the combine and whatnot, someone had said, I, I don't know if your skin's thick enough for that kind of thing because it's just a, a different world. And I'm sure you have endless stories about that. But that's separating yourself from the, the jersey that you're wearing is pretty cool. I mean, I, you may not be able to do that in all 
walks of life in regards to, to giving poor news to people and news they don't want to hear, but that's, a, that's an interesting way to put it. When it's not to do with what people are um, saying to you and you know, you know, they're a game where you had a couple of missed calls or maybe it's even into the third and it's just been a rough one. Like, what is it that's going through your mind so that, and, and again, re- referencing Landeskog is when he said he has a bad game, he, does, he doesn't try to have, he doesn't try to flip it around and have the best game. He just works hard and, and tries to make everything overall a little bit better so that he doesn't let it be a terrible game. He does everything he can to make it a good game because he says if you try to, you know, you try to just flip things around and now go score three goals in relation to refing, you know, maybe it's into the third, you've had a rough go. There's less you can do as a ref too to just go out there and, and improve what you've done. So what is it that goes through your mind at that point? Yeah, so I, as long as we always say, like, as long as you don't make the same mix, mistake twice, like, you know, you get you make a bad call in the first period. You know, you're not you can't make a makeup call. You can't give the other team. I know people think there's makeup calls, but there really isn't. Um, so as, as long as you if you make a mistake, they don't make the mistake again, and you just move on from it and try and make the best call that you can going forward. The game's so fast now that um, you know I've 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 sat here and talked a lot about mistakes. We always make mistakes, but there's times when you know referees have like great games. Let the let the players play and and you know afterwards the guys are like hey that was a great game good job thanks um but it's just the game is getting so fast now and the players are getting so smart and um there's such an emphasis on power plays and special teams that like one little mistake can have like a huge um, impact in the game and we are as hard as anybody on ourselves. Like my buddies text me after the game, like, nice job, you screwed us or whatever. Like, <laughs> like they're whoever they're cheering for. And I'm like, dude, don't text me. Like I already, I already know that it, I made a mistake. Like I'm the first guy that like, when I put my arm with the air, I'm like, oh, like get the saw. I don't want to saw my arm off because <laughs> I don't want my arm to be in there for this penalty because it's a bad call. Yeah, but like that, you just can't, you can't do anything about it. You just, you were decisive. You made a decision in a split second and, and you kind of got to live with it. So um, sometimes we ask the players like, or tell the players, like, hey, that was a bad call. You guys better kill this penalty for me. And, like, I need you to kill this penalty. Really? And so you'll like, have that conversation? Oh, yeah. And they'll be, like, they'll be like, don't worry, Ranker. We got this. Like, we'll kill this one off for you. And it's like, okay, thank you. And it's always, like, we call it, like, kind of like Murphy's Law, whereas if you make a bad call, it usually ends up in the other team's net. Yeah. So like, oh, yeah. It's, just, it's like a bad penalty. It, like, you take some good penalties, and yeah. then you take a terrible tripping call, and they score in 10 seconds. Yeah. 100%. So <laughs> it's uh, it's the ebbs and flows of refing are, are huge. We'll go, I'll go through, like, a span of, like, five games where I'm like, I'm like, oh, give me the Stanley Cup finals this year. Like, I'm rolling. <laughs> haven't missed a thing. Like, this is great. And then like, for five for five games in a row, like maybe like 10 games later, you're just like, oh boy, like I'm fighting it hard for these mm-hmm. like last five games. I, and you know, I don't know what it is to explain it, why it goes like that. But um, I think it has a little bit to do with like confidence and like having confidence. You make one bad call and you're like kind of like down yourself. Then, you know, you make another mistake in the next game. You're like, oh, shoot. And then before you know it, you're just like lost a little bit of your confidence not as like perky you know not as as excited to go to the arena mm-hmm. and and so you, that's that's huge and like that's that's why mentally I've I've got to like a new level in my golf game and kind of the results are the results are showing from that I couldn't imagine throwing my hand up in front of 20,000 to 30,000 people and 
having to basically eat your words. That's what came to mind. You, you throw your hand up, you know it was the wrong call instantly because you're, you're working so quick and your mind's moving so fast. Like, how's that mental thought go besides, you know, we joked about Murphy's Law and, you know, help and talking to the players, but like what goes through your mind instantly that allows you to then get back on the horse and because you still have maybe, maybe still have 40 minutes of game left. Like the, what? The biggest thing for us is not to lie to the players. The players... They're the best players in the world. They know when it's a shitty call. Like, they, they're going to see right through that. So, like, in terms of us building rapport and trust with the guys, just like, hey, man, that was a bad call. Maybe I didn't see it the right way or, you know, maybe my view is obstructed a little bit. Like, I w- it won't happen again. Like, let's move on from it. And, like, some guys are, and others are better than being like, yeah, no problem. Like, we'll take care of this or, like, yep, yeah, it happens and then other guys, you know, like will will bury you for, you know, like a period and a half and, and scream and yell at you. And that's just that's just part of the gig. And um, I think going into it as a referee, as you travel through the levels, you learn how to deal with the scrutiny and the pushback from players and coaches and even fans sometimes. And it's just part of the gig. And from experience, you learn how to deal with it. And um, I mean, it, nobody enjoys making like as as much as probably fans think we don't like enjoy making bad calls and like penalizing their their team like we don't do it on purpose it's our job is out there to officiate a game and we're trying to officiate it the best that we can Mm. i can only imagine the people listening here and that and then you know there's no makeup calls and i can and unfortunately i could probably even hear my dad when he listens to this thinking come on of course there is of course yeah my dad would say the same thing like he'd always like sit at home and and like bash referees and even when I played I treated the referees like crap like that was just mm. it's just part of the game you know I always used to try and like push the referees buttons because like I knew kind of like as a referee what you could get away with and what you couldn't and I'd ask some rules questions because I'd know the answer and like see <laughs> kind of see if they know it and then like what even in like yeah like even uh, even in golf it's pretty funny like when I have to deal with like rules officials I, you get like crapped on all season, so on like not that I'm crapping on like on uh, the golf officials, but I'll give them a hard time and like question him, question them about the ruling, and say like, oh, I don't, I don't think that's the case. You're like, hey, can I have a second opinion and call like another rules official? Half of it's because like I don't agree with the ruling, and half of it's just because like, listen, man, I got crapped on all year. Like, I want you to get crapped on a little bit out here too. A little taste that, of their yeah, own medicine, exa- exactly. Because so. I'm sure they're hockey fans too, and they were yelling at the TV when you were uh, when you were at work. For sure, they were. Everybody like comes up and was, and like everybody that I meet like during the summer at a golf tournament or like they're they all have like one memory from like the last season. Like, oh, you remember when you made that call and you absolutely like that was a terrible call. It's like. Listen, man, I made like made thousands of calls, probably like 50 bad ones. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But yes, I agree. It was probably a bad call. Yeah. And then they probably have nothing to say. That's exactly. Such a, that's cool when you can get to that point. I find, you know, I'd even take a piece of that when I, you know, in life, when you make the wrong call here and there, it's like, you know what? Be honest with the other people. Be honest with yourself and, and yeah. pick up and move on. I like that. That's that's cool. The biggest thing is, is as long as you learn when you make those mistakes. Like if you if if you're making the mistake over and over and over again, that's not good. But if you're allowed to make mistakes, mistakes happen. And if you can just learn the lessons and apply them forward, then that's big. Yeah, yeah. I heard one time a, a coach I grew up with. He said, "You know, it's okay to have a bad day." He said, "That's part of life. That's totally fine." He said, "Just do everything you can not to make it two bad days." And it's For sure. it's you know easier said than done, but a good good I think you know, theory to go on. I know guys must have been chirping you on the golf course at the U.S. Open, and I'm and I'm sure next year we'll, the guys will have tons of chirps for you on the ice. But before we get into that, when you're dealing with 
and I, I only saw a piece of it in, in major junior hockey, um, but even the stakes are even higher at the National League level. Like, how do you decelerate a situation that is not even close to getting out of hand, though, but is probably out of hand? Like, what is the first thing you have to do to bring, well, you're to get yourself in control, but then bring everyone else into control when it's like, I don't know, a, you know, a, a, not a bench brawl, but close to that. You have a bunch of guys going. Like, what is it that is like, step one two or three or how is it you approach that situation um you kind of just gotta let it like play its course um you try to like take control of the of the situation or the conversation quickly so um you know be like like ben i'll talk to you i'm not gonna we're not gonna yell at each other but we're gonna try and have a conversation and and if you keep yelling i'm out of here and then they'll like they'll keep yelling but then they'll like like oh i'm out of here and then they're like no i want to talk to you so they'll like (laughs) calm down and then before you know it they'll like get their hands going or like making motions with their stick and you're like listen man like if you want to talk to me here there's going to be you know it's going to go one way either you're going to talk I'm going to listen or I'm going to talk and and you're going to listen and before you know it they like are like totally confused on like (laughs) what they wanted to talk about in the first place and then so you like end up like talking about it a little bit and then I think they just want to vent. They just like want to get it off their chest. They feel like they've been wronged or they feel like they're getting the short side of the stick. And so they just, they just come to you to like a try and bargain for the next call or like be like, kind of just like let some, let some bad negative energy. like Right. So, um, just being approachable, being, um, being there to like talk to them. It's the guys, guys get mad. Like when you're like, no, I'm not talking to you. Like get away from me. Um, and there's times you have to do that when they've like crossed the line or, um, you know, you'll try and talk to a guy and he'll be like, no, I don't want to talk to you. And then he'll like, uh, next period, he'll be like, oh, I want to talk to you. And I'm like, no, I don't want to talk to you now. So it's, it's a bit of a game. Like, yeah. It sounds like you're dealing with game, kids. But, well, yeah, you're like, I mean, I, you shouldn't say you're like babysitting millionaires. That's not the right way to put it. But like, yeah, like at, at some point, you know, some games are way harder. Some coaches are way harder to deal with. And um, that's just like part of the gig. And and you kind of just figure out how to uh, how to deal. And and some guys in our staff are are way better, way more personality than other guys. And so, um, you, you know, you kind of like find your niche, or you find like how you kind of officiate and and go about it that way. And now, is there a emotion in it for you, or do you think purely rationally, like I can't invest emotion into this because it will get into my decision making? Because we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast that when you're you know, when your emotions are high, you don't think as, as, as well, you don't think rationally, but when you can, you know, over time work on that mindset and separate the emotion, you actually think, you know, scientifically, you think more rationally and you think more clear. Is there ever emotion in it for you or? Yeah. I mean, you, you'd like to think there wouldn't be, but you're human and everybody has emotions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if, if some guy like really crosses the line and you're like, man, what do you, like, I don't understand why you're so mad. Or like, you're thinking to yourself, like, really like that was a great call and and they're like super mad at me now for no reason and then you're having a bad day at home like your kids or or your wife are mad at you or you just like come to the rink with a bad attitude then like you know you're gonna like kind of sometimes lash out and we get into like swearing wars sometimes with players or um you know you get into like a battle with players but the more you can manage your emotions and the more you can just like stay that flat line for the mm-hmm. whole game, obviously the better you're going to perform and the, and the better your, your night's going to be. And I think the players respond to that as too. like mm-hmm. anytime they start yelling, if you yell back, they yell louder, you yell louder. And, but if they yell at you and you give them like a monotone response, they're just like, kind of like, Oh, 
and then they like kind of calm down a little bit and then before you know it you're having a normal civilized conversation right i that's an interesting approach actually to even coaching i i heard my buddy that had a coach in pro and he said he he never yelled the entire year and when he spoke actually pregame pregame meetings and whatnot he would actually almost speak just below where you could hear so you have to be so you have to listen so clearly that he would guys would always remember what he had to say because you would have to listen intently because if you didn't you'd miss something and it right that's it again going back to the always being this loud prepare over energized it's it's kind of the opposite which is seems like it, it works for you too <laughs> that sounds i think it's so funny babysitting millionaires not that we'll make that the title of this of this episode <laughs> but it's an interesting interesting way to uh to uh picture it now I, I lucked out with my head coach when I played, and I, I know we're keeping this around sport for sure, but my coach, one of the biggest things he taught me was always, always, any room you enter, strive to be respected. Don't worry about being liked, he said, because you can be liked, but that doesn't mean anyone's going to trust you, and that's the difference between being liked and being respected, he said, is trust. So how do you go about make? I know we've talked about it a little bit and, and being honest with guys, but is how do you make sure... And, you know, as soon as the game starts, the guys are going to respect everything you've, you know, you're there for, which really the odds are against you, I would say, in, in relation to the game. So that was our theme for our whole team last year at training camp and throughout last season. Was our, our title was rapport and trust. So in order to be respected in the game or, you know, build rapport and trust with the game participants, we discussed different things like being ready when the puck, start, when the puck drops. Um, building a relationship with the guys through communication, um, having a knowledge of the rules and applying those rules correctly through the game. Now you look at the guys with the most rapport and trust and the guys that are most respected on our staff, and it's usually the guys who have worked the Stanley Cup Finals. And they're not getting that rapport and trust because they worked the Stanley Cup Finals. They're getting that rapport and trust because they earned the right to work the Stanley Cup Finals. So through communication, through dealing with the players, through making the right call more times than not. And the more you're around, the more that the guys accept you within the game and accept like, hey, you know, if, if Garrett Rank makes a mistake next season, he's only got three years in the league, like there's going to be guys that like get all over me. If Wes McCauley makes a mistake next season, he's got 15 years in the league, worked you know the last five or six Stanley Cup Finals. The reaction to, to a missed call from him versus me is going to be dramatically different. So I think in order to build that like respect, you just got to put in a solid effort every game, try as hard as you can, work as hard as you can, and at the end of the day, make sure you are making a fair and, and right call as, as much as possible. I- I assume you have some stories of some uh, past guests we've had on this this podcast, and I'd love to have have you spill the beans on on a couple of our past guests. That being uh, Landis Cog and Shifley. So, but but that being said, they both of them did tell me. I told them you were coming on the coming on the podcast, and they said to make sure I said hi to you. So again, that like you said, maybe there are times where they were yelling at the jersey you were wearing as opposed to you as a person. But um, they you know they they made sure that. Uh, they said uh, hi to you. So I, I don't know if I could, I would put my money on that Landis Cog could be, could cause a little more issue than Shifley, but maybe I'm wrong. So if you can, uh, if you want to, you know, put them out there, I'd love yeah, to hear it. I got, okay. I got a couple of good stories. Um, honestly, both like first class, first class guys, like young leaders of their hockey team and like obviously great players. Um, Landis Cog's a captain and, uh, 
in Colorado, so I uh, talked to Gabe a little bit more. But uh, we usually bond over uh, Chris at the Daily Grill. Uh, every time I see Chris, he's like, "Tell Gabe he has never he hasn't come back since he played for the Rangers," and and he's like, "You've taken over his breakfast plan," and I'm like, "Nice." But uh, that's for but people like, listening. That's the local uh, local restaurant owner here that supports a lot of the local sports, and and Gabe uh, used to eat there quite a bit when he when he finished playing. So. Yeah. But yeah, Gabe and I's interactions are like, like, cause he, I feel like we know each other. We're like the same age or like, we always like usually like get on each other, but I can tell that like, I've, I have a respect for him. And like, at the end of the day, like he has a respect for me. So I don't have any like actual like stories other than like, he always comes over and like trying, tries to like bargain for calls. And then I'll just tell him like, Hey, like if you score a goal, like maybe Chris will give you free breakfast or something <laughs> like that. Um, but then I have a funny, I have a funny story about Shife late in the playoffs this year or not in the playoffs, but late in the regular season. Um, he absolutely laid out a guy in the first period, like just like crushed him along the boards. And I think the second period he came down uh, in the corner and he got like laid out pretty good and then a guy went behind the net and like and just like annihilated his teammate from behind major penalty out of the game so Scheiss over there talking to me and uh, I'm, I'm like Scheiss like you guys got a five minute power play um, like that was a bad hit and he's like yeah man he's like I know it was a bad hit he hit me right in the head <laughs> and I'm like Scheiss I'm like I'm like I'm not talking about your hit I'm talking about you know, uh, your teammate that get hit in the corner. It's a major penalty. You guys have a five-minute power play. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, there's no penalty on my head. And I'm like, I'm like, no. I'm like, Shife, it's no different. I'm like, you steamrolled the guy in the first period <laughs> along the boards. Very hard, legal body check. I'm like, I think, I'm like, I think the hit on you was very legal. It was a hard hit. I'm like, and he's like, he's like, Ranker, I used to think you were good. He's like, but like, you're having a bad game tonight. <laughs> and I'm just like... <laughs> and he, or he's like everybody says you're a nice guy he's like you're having a bad game tonight and it was just like I was just like oh you have a you have a five minute power play and now I'm not a nice guy anymore <laughs> so I was I was waiting to I was waiting to run into him this summer and give him a hard time about it but uh, it was a good laugh and I mean I left the ice you just told me I sucked but I left the ice kind of like giggling to myself that like dude you're going on a five minute power play and 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 now you think I'm a bad guy so that's pretty funny <laughs> that's so marked though not you know not swearing or getting too no, yeah and that's like, another like, didn't, like didn't swear didn't yeah. like like kind of raised his voice but like never swore like yeah. but was just like he's like you know what you're you're, you're just not a nice guy <laughs> and, and, and that sounds so like about that right was, that was like the best you could come up with but I mean it was it was a good laugh and I mean I have a ton of respect for him he's he's a world-class player and um, it's just cool to like have that relationship with the guys and kind of like that respect that, you know, I never really earned. I just kind of received from being kind of their age and, and kind of grew up in like the same area. Mm -hmm. So it's almost cool having relationships where you work through, it's not like a, a pretend relationship where it would be with friends or co where coworkers is, you know, in an office setting is, is totally business. And then you have the opposite where you have friends where it's generally you're just dealing with good times. It's, it's cool to have, you know, as you talk about this relationships with people that probably grow quite strongly because you're, you're working through emotion and high stress situations with people all the time. And sometimes, you know, it, it's not, not every relationship is like that. And that seems more of a, a mix of, of things, which helps you, uh, you know, makes work interesting at least. Yeah, it's hard for us to like really have a relationship outside the rink with the players. I mean, I know like 
I know those two guys and I know a few other players in the league just from like growing up in the area, maybe playing hockey against them. But um, for the most part, uh, we don't really get to see the guys outside of the rink. So it's, it's a cool dynamic to like, um, you know, first off be involved in the game and then kind of like deal with these guys who are like the best players in the world at their sport. And then at the end of the day, like you look at the Stanley Cup playoffs you kick the crap out of each other for seven games and then you shake your hand, you shake each other's hand at the end. Mm-hmm. You're like, even like some of the guys will go and have a beer together after the game, right? Like it's just, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a, it's a weird concept to like wrap your head around, but like that's just the game of hockey and that's just like kind of like sports in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is great. I would love to hear what the, because people at the U S open, I feel like way before it even started, it was all over the media that I'm sure the fans and maybe even fellow players had some, had some one-liners saved up when they saw you. I, were there anything? Was there anything that that made you laugh while you were at the the U.S. Open? I assume it was pretty, you know, respectful stuff. I don't think anyone would cross the line because in golf, it, it seems like a pretty respectful game. But was there a lot of chirps being thrown around? Yeah, it was. It was great. Like first off, I like was treated like a rock star all week. Like I was a million over par, and like people. Uh, like we're loving me still. Like I'd hit a good shot and like every like guys would yell like smash the Timbit or like <laughs> oh I heard one guy yell like we need more uh, slashing calls on Pittsburgh like after <laughs> I hit a shot and then the one particular moment I I remember on the 13th hole I hit my pro shot in the green it was like pretty quiet late in the day and the guy just like stood up in this bleachers and he was like hey Garrett we hate refs, but today we like you. And then everybody was like clapping and uh, like a huge ovation. And like, that was pretty neat. Um, and Mackenzie Hughes, a fellow Canadian, a good buddy of mine who I played on the national team with for three years. He was my playing partner for the Thursday and Friday round. And he's like, just so you know, like, like you were like treated like a rock star this week. It's like not usually like this. Um, he's like, the fact that like these people like are chanting and like loving you is like yeah. remember that because like you probably don't like, get much of that at work you, yeah you never get that at work like nobody's ever cheering for you at work so <laughs> it was kind of neat to like be on like the player side of things where like people were pulling for you and like had your like best interests in mind we had a uh, guest on Stephen Woods who's an engineering director at at Google here incredible incredible guy incredible story and one thing I've talked about as a late even at a couple events I've been speaking at and he had this concept of 70 20 10 where he puts as a company I mean he's leading teams that are creating billion dollar you know pieces of software and billion dollar products but but the way he he builds teams and he he tells his team that you know 70 percent of your time or efforts go into um, go into building the things that are making 70 percent of our income and running 70 percent of this so you know gmail google search engine and then he said that 20% goes into ideas that could innovate the 70%. And then he said the 10% is things that you probably would be embarrassed to tell people because they're so crazy, but you enjoy working on them. And it's, you know, so for Google, it could be, you know, stuff that's 40 years down the road that he couldn't even tell me on the podcast. I asked him, I said, well, what would that be? And he said, oh, we're not allowed to disclose just because it's stuff that's going to change the world. and then I related that to, I've started with people and it's really resonated with people. They've said, you know what, that's a, that's a great idea. And I said, I, relating that to your life. So you have 70%, your, your full-time job pays the bills. You know, sometimes you enjoy it. Other times you're just doing it because you have to. Um, 20% is, you know, furthering your education or building a bigger network, et cetera. And then that 10% is just crazy things that you, you enjoy. It's challenging. It keeps you excited. And also, so 
And people have liked that, especially a lot of business people have thought, you know, I'm going to keep that in mind. I have to make sure I, I focus on, I don't let that 10% become 9% because that's the excitement. That's the breaking edge stuff. In relation to your life with golf and refing, and knowing that, you, I mean, it seems as if pro golf as a more full-time option isn't that far out of reach. And I know you have a great gig going with the National Hockey League, but in relation to that, like, what would be the long-term goal with with everything you have on your plate right now? I mean, you have so many moving pieces, and and obviously you have your your background and your education as well, which just adds more to your to your resume. What's the what is the long-term goal? Are you just riding this out and uh, just riding the wave right now? But um, ideally, uh, I love officiating. One of the coolest jobs ever. Um, I can't say it was a childhood dream. Childhood dream was playing in the NHL, but this is the second best. No kid ever dreams of being a referee. But um, great job, um, long-term security, uh, involved in hockey at the at the best, highest level. Uh, long-term officiate in the Stanley Cup Finals, uh, work the playoffs, be a good team member, um, work till I'm, you know, 55 years old and retire. Uh, golf side of things, maybe join the senior tour uh, down the road. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not far from playing golf. I could play golf professionally. I'm not saying I could play on the PGA Tour or the web.com, but I could definitely turn professional in golf and, and try and pursue my way. But um, it's, it's really like such a risk. Um, there's a lot of like moving parts in professional golf. It's kind of like, what have you done for me lately? Um, so right now my stock is high and I'm playing great. Um, but you know, in refing, I hate to say it, but in refing, you make a bad call. You, it's your job. You still get paid in golf. You hit a bad shot. You don't really, you're not getting paid still. So, um, the security of refing is great. I love refing. It's, uh, one of my biggest passions in my life and I just happen to have this huge passion for golf and this this hobby uh, I shouldn't even call it a hobby like this like golf dream of mine and um, luckily enough I was allowed to to play like or qualified I wasn't allowed I qualified I earned that uh, to play in the U.S. Open and um, that's a major championship that's like kind of like the pinnacle of the highest place you can go so in golf love to play the Masters as an amateur, you can qualify for the Masters through the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Mid-Am. That'd be a huge goal of mine. But I have no plans of, of turning pro at the moment. Uh, I love amateur golf. I love where I'm at. I get to play the best golf courses in the world, um, kind of in all these different events. And I can test myself at the highest levels in amateur golf. And I feel like that's just as good as um, the minor leagues of professional golf. Uh, it would be a huge kind of ego stroke to play on the PJ Tour every week. But um, I don't need that. I can get I can get better at golf um, playing at the amateur level and can meet my personal goals. And, and if I start winning every amateur tournament that I play in, then maybe I would think about playing in professional golf to challenge myself. But um, I love my job, addicted to golf, and mm-hmm. I really don't have much time for anything else. Yeah, I was going to say, what else do you fit into that schedule? But it sounds like golf really is that 20% and 10%. Like you said, that golf is, is helping your refing, which is the set, well, could be the 70%. I know I'm putting words in your mouth, but then also just the excitement of the golf. And now that you're able to play the, you know, in the U.S. Open, as if in your mind you're playing just golf like you always do every day out, out and about. Like, aren't these other guys golfing? Yeah, so all year? these other guys are down in, in Florida or warm Arizona or yeah. California playing golf year-round. I don't mind that, though. I mean, there's something to be said about that for me to get away from the game, clear my mind, 
have a fresh like approach to the game when I start. You know, by September, I'll be kind of not sick of golf, but like I'll need a break from golf. And so it'll be good to put the clubs away for a couple months and mm-hmm. to change my thought process back to refing and, um, you know, enjoy that. I love refing, love hanging out with the guys and, and working the games. It's such a thrill. But then when I come back in, in April and May and the golf season's fresh, like, man, am I ever excited to get out there. Right. I think that kind of like bodes well for success as well, right? Because, you know, you're not like burnt out. Or you're not tired of it. You're excited to get back out there and play. And uh, it's kind of like a fresh start every year. And you can only get people, you can only take people cheering for you so much, right? You need people yelling at you every once in a while. So. <laughs> no, I'm so used to it that it's like, oh, this is kind of weird. Why, why has this guy not told me I suck yet? I mean, I'm, I'm a bunch over and everybody's like, oh yeah, way to go. Nice shot. So. <laughs> Are they talking to me? Is there someone behind me they're talking to? You talked about seeing the other guy, like, you know, the big names in, in golf, the, the really, the figureheads of the game. Were there times at this past tournament you cross paths or realize something about them that it's like, Oh, I didn't even realize that's the way they were or something they did or. Um, no, not really. Um, a lot of the guys are out there and it's their job, right? So they're, they're putting, they're punching in an eight and, and putting in a full day's work and then leaving and going dealing with their families and whatnot. But, um, just to like, for me selfishly, just to be out there and like, my good shots are as good as those guys shots but they're just more consistent than I am I'll hit like two or three shots around that like couldn't survive out on the PGA Tour but it's not like they can do anything that like it's like oh wow like I can't do that there's a few guys out there that hit it way farther than I do and I hit it pretty far and it's like wow maybe I can't hit it that far but for the most part I like felt like really confident and um was like wow like I'm this is like feasible like I deserve to be Mm -hmm. out here um, and, but at the end of the day, I played practice rounds with all the guys and they're all like good dudes, all wanted to know hockey stories, played a lot of golf with like with the NHL hockey players at their club. And so like, you know, I'm out there like, dude, like tell me about like pro golf and they're like, no, screw that. Like we want to know about hockey. Like let's talk hockey for the mm. round. So um, like that was kind of like cool to see that. And uh, another thing, too, is when you're so like driven and, and like kind of like I shouldn't say successful, but like you've achieved or you're so focused on like getting somewhere you don't like really like kind of stop and think about like how cool that is. Mm-hmm. Like, so like I qualified on the, for the U S open on Monday. And then like the next week I was at the U S open, like playing it. And I'm like, so focused trying to do well. And then like, I still really haven't thought about it, but like five years down the road when I'm, you know, maybe I'm not playing golf at the same level or, you know, when I'm six years old and it's like, wow, like I actually played in the U S open. Like how cool is that? Or like, I actually get to, uh, you know, referee every night in the NHL. Like that's, that's pretty special. And, mm-hmm. um, you kind of like, you kind of just like take it for granted that you're in the NHL every night. Whereas like, there's a ton of people trying to make it to the NHL. There's a ton of people that would love to be in your position. And, you know, sometimes you just got to take a step back and, and like be like grateful for the opportunity and like, kind of like put a smile on your face. Cause you're like, I've worked really hard for this. And, and this is really, really cool. Yeah, it's that ironic you say that. I've had a, a bunch of of people on this podcast, incredible people, every single one, and you know they've either had to work. Everyone has had to work so hard and do so many incredible things to get to where they are. Through whether that's business, whether it's health, whether whatever, and I find it's this message comes up too many times in this podcast. Not to say anything, and it's just like that self reflection. I think is so healthy because if yeah. you don't, if you never, like you said, if you never take that time to kind of realize, wow, I did this. 
like that you miss out on that gratification that that then propels you forward for something else and it's been you know a lot of a lot of people have said wow you know I've never thought of it that way or it was this has been great to talk about I never talk about this I I never get to pat myself on the back yeah any you know right so it's I know I haven't added too much of my own two cents in here on this episode but I just thought I would here because you know I brought up this idea of self-reflection and Garrett is, is in the midst of doing that right now, and you'll continue to hear him talk about it. But even after this episode, I, I asked Garrett if he wanted to go for a cup of coffee, you know, chat about things further and whatnot. He's, he's local and heard a lot about him, but never had the chance to sit down and chat beyond this podcast. So anyways, we get together, and, and even at the coffee shop, he went in further to talk about other things. And I myself, it was a story about, you know, a family member that that he had lost and then went in to talk about how he, how he continued to ref that day anyways. And it was an unbelievable milestone of refing a huge game. And when he reflected on that, he was telling me he was getting goosebumps while he was talking about it. And it just, you know, made him smile and it felt so good. And I'm sitting across the table as he's telling the story. And I said, you know, I have goosebumps on my back right now. And I think there's a, a, a real value in that. And I think it's it's not chance anymore for those listeners that have, have heard past guests say something similar. You know what? This has been great to talk about or, wow, this isn't something I usually talk about, but it's it's been a good experience, so thanks for having me, et cetera. I think it's just proof that no matter what you're chasing, uh, a, a little reminder to, to every so often take a step back and think, you know, look at what I've done, regardless of the situation or where you are, if you want to be or not. You know, look at what I've done. And it's important. I think it's really important and something we forget about because we're moving so fast in life today. But I just thought I'd, I'd bring that up because it's happened too many times for me not to make a point of it. Even taking the negatives away from anything. Like I, I was at the US Open, I shot 83, like embarrassed by that. Not a great score. But at the end of the day, I deserved, I earned the opportunity to play out there. And like that's, that's super cool. Like there's a ton of people that would love to be in that position that have tried many times to, to do that. And, you know, if you look at refing and you're like, man, I get yelled at and like beat up mentally every night of the week. But like, you're just like, wow, this is, I, this is the job I chose. I love this job. I'm so passionate about it. And then you just, you're like, so that's part of the job and you just learn to deal with it. And I mean, it's just, even I was for another short story, like being nominated for like the KW athlete of the year. Like I've been nominated four times, never, never even like sniffed winning. I think Shife won it a couple last year, maybe. But, uh, you know, you look at that and you're like, and like the people like send you your resume or like your results for the year. And you're like, oh, I kind of forgot that I did that. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's kind of cool. And like to like go there and, and spend the night with like your family and friends and like, and like you're gone so busy, can't hang out, make sacrifices, like miss a lot of your like family time and like your friends. And you're just like, this is for them. And like, this is for you to kind of like, sit back and you're like wow for like the last you know nine and a half months I never even really thought about this it's just been go 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 and like that's pretty cool you need like you need time to like shut off and recharge and kind of like yeah last thing I'm curious about like you've really like we've said is you live the live the living the dream in quotations and and there are a lot of people that are watching from we'll say their couches really on the when you're golfing and when you're at your other job which is which is an NHL ref is there anything you could see yourself doing beyond out, out of the game of golf, out of the game of hockey that you could see yourself doing? And, and one of the main reasons I ask is I'm learning more and more how big of an issue transition out of sport is. I mean, transition out of, out of a job is, but, but when you grow up with this 
um, this concept in your mind that it's it's who you are, it's everything, hockey or soccer, whatever it is, and having to transition out of that. Is there anything else you see yourself doing or could be good at or step into other than, I mean, you already have two pretty good careers, but... Yeah, if I didn't uh, if I didn't go to the University of Waterloo, I'd signed up to be an electrician. I was going to do my apprentice for that, so that okay. was like that was Plan A one right out of high school. Uh, but then uh, I could see myself like um, wanting being like kind of like a coach for like officials or like even like a coach, kind of like taking on a mentorship role for young officials or young golfers. Um, I mean, I, I honestly don't really know. I haven't even really thought about it. I've been so immersed in, mm-hmm. in hockey and, and trying to make it to the NHL as a referee and playing golf, uh, the highest level that I can play, that I've kind of, like, been addicted to that and, and never really, like, stepped back and, like, thought about it. But I could definitely see myself, like, trying to become the boss of officials for the NHL or um, kind of giving back to golf in some way and being, like, a rules official in golf, like, as a, re- as a retiree for, like, the GAO or Golf Canada. Um, but I, I, sh- I shouldn't say my life is defined by sport. I'd like to like at some point be like a dad and like have a family, maybe like coach a coach my kid's team or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, because you're just like you, you get taken away by sport. You're so consumed by sport that like I haven't like a lot of I'm 30 now and like all my buddies like are getting married and having kids and like I haven't even like sniffed that thought so it's like (laughs) getting off topic here but you kind of think like wow it'd be cool if I had like a a five or eight year old son right now that or even daughter that could like come to the hockey rink and like see their dad as an NHL referee Mm -hmm. or see their dad like play on like a in a PGA tour event so you like miss out on things in life but you you know these are the choices that you made the sacrifices that you make and and I've come to accept that and wouldn't want to change a thing. So I don't, I don't really know where, what I'd want to do or where I'd go, but just kind of just riding the wave. And whenever it bucks me, it bucks me. And we'll just figure it out when we get there. I like that. So just, I guess, don't make two bad calls in a row. And yeah. if, you, if you're in the trees, don't try and put it right beside the pin. Lay it up and then make a nice, easy shot. And then you'll have your careers forever. Exactly. Perfect. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. I know you're busy flying around everywhere right now. So means a lot and we'll see you on the tv in a couple sports in the in the near future appreciate it thank you that brings us to the end of another heroic minds podcast one of the messages i enjoyed from today i mean there were lots but one of the the cool ones that i'm gonna add to my repertoire of of skills and tools is when you make the wrong decision you don't necessarily have to fix it right away but to communicate admit you're wrong and then move forward as a group, as everyone involved, even the people that may not be happy about that decision, is probably the best thing to do instead of waiting on it, waiting on it. So anyways, that's what I took from it. Again, there's many other messages, but uh, yeah, this was a fun one, an interesting one. I don't know if we'll have any other NHL refs and golf pros on the podcast, but uh, maybe we'll have Garrett back again in the future. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.